Hello, and thanks for returning for episode two of the Historical Belfast podcast with me, your host, Jason Burke. This episode will explore the Belfast Engineering Strike of 1919, an almost totally forgotten event in Belfast's turbulent history, one that brought the city to a complete standstill in an attempt to secure a shorter working week. I think it's important to set out some of the context here at the outset of what was happening globally at the time. There had been recent revolutions in Russia and Germany, as well as activity closer to home with various strikes during the First World War, for example. Further back, you may even argue that the Dublin lockout of 1913, the Belfast strike of 1907, still fairly recent events in 1919, and would have shaped how workers chose to react in testing circumstances. It's also worth including here that on Saturday the 30th of November 1918, There was a gathering of trade unionists and labour activists in Belfast's Ulster Hall to pledge their support to the labour candidates in the upcoming general election. It would have been easy actually to pass over this event, but the Freeman's Journal newspaper described it as the most remarkable demonstration of trade unionism ever witnessed in Belfast, using the headline, The North Awakening, echoes there of Owen McNeill and The North Began. Among the Labour candidates were several men who would go on to be leaders of the engineering strike. Looking back at it, you'd be forgiven for coming to the conclusion that there was a revolutionary atmosphere in Labour circles at the time. Perhaps more importantly though, the Belfast strike should be seen in the context of the end of the First World War. A cataclysmic event that was not only devastating for servicemen and their families on a human level, but also for European economies. Here in Belfast, The war had brought local industries into conflict with the state at various points, so the idea of strike action was a path well trodden. Added to economic crises was the demobilisation of servicemen at the end of the war. The city of Belfast provided some 46,000 volunteers for military service during the First World War, and by 1919 many of these were in the process of returning to Belfast and looking for employment in their old stomping ground. The strike itself was fundamentally about a reduction in the working week. During the war, the working week at Harden and Wolfe and Workman Clark, for example, was 54 hours before overtime, and it was not uncommon for men to be working 60 and 70 hour weeks in this period. Therefore, the battle was to reduce these hefty working hours to 44 hours, and in doing so, create opportunities for returning servicemen. In that sense, the intentions were entirely admirable. The demand for a reduction in the working week was also coupled with the demand that there should be no reduction of pay. Again, this does not appear to have been unreasonable in the context of some other disputes. In Glasgow, for example, there was an initial intent to go on strike for a 30-hour week without a reduction in pay, before they eventually did go on strike for a 40-hour week. So how did the strike come about in Belfast? Well, from July 1918, There was an attempt by the engineering trade unions across the United Kingdom to negotiate the working week down to 44 hours with no reduction in pay. 
Predictably though, employers were resistant. On the face of it, a shorter working week appears to have made good sense, given that the end of the war would simultaneously reduce demand for orders and increase demand for employment. However, following an employer's ballot, the best offer on the table was a 47-hour week, not the 44-hour week that workers and trade unions had hoped for. Many workforces in Great Britain voted in favour of the 47-hour proposals. However, Belfast and Glasgow voted against. Consequently, the Federation of Engineering and Shipbuilding Unions for Belfast and Glasgow threatened strike action. On the 5th of December 1918, the campaign for a 44-hour working week was brought to the Ulster Hall in Belfast for a mass meeting. It was just over a week until the UK general election and all candidates were invited along to offer their views. On the platform were Sir Edward Carson, for example, and 10 other election candidates, though not Joe Devlin, the Nationalist MP for West Belfast, who sent apologies that he was suffering from a cold. During the meeting, James Freeland from the Amalgamated Society of Engineers proposed that the meeting should collectively call for a 44-hour week to be introduced from the 1st of January 1919. Amongst other speakers, Sir Edward Carson offered his views. They were measured considerations, not designed to win friends or votes. Carson agreed with the principle of their stand, and he began by saying, For a great part of my professional career, I used to get up at half past four in the morning and work very often until late at night. I never liked getting up at half past four, and at last I came to the conclusion that it was a dog's life, and I gave it up. He went on to say that he had no issues with the 44-hour week being proposed, but that he did have reservations about Irish workers being out of sync with workers in Great Britain, and the potential implications for economic competitiveness. His preferred option was that Belfast workers should convince GB workers to stand with them in their campaign for 44 hours. That way, there would be parity. Nevertheless, Freeland's proposal was unanimously accepted at the end of the meeting, and in doing so, they had hastened the possibility of a strike in Belfast. The Federation of Engineering and Shipbuilding Unions met again on the 8th of January 1919 in order to decide how to proceed. They opted to ballot their membership on the issue of strike action. The ballot was held on Tuesday the 14th of January. On that day at 12 noon, about 30,000 shipyard and engineering workers downed tools and streamed out of places like Harlan and Wolfe, Workman Clark, Mackey's and Sirocco Works. They joined a procession on Queen's Road and were led into the centre of Belfast by a fife and drum band, some bagpipers and the Sirocco Works brass band. Some of the slogans carried by this dungaree clad army included 44 hours means work for demobilised soldiers 44 hours means no unemployment and 47 behind, we want 44 One man simply carried a plain iron shovel with the figure 44 inscribed on it When they reached Belfast City Hall, they took part in a brief open-air meeting where addresses were given by leading trade unionists. Then, they marched to their respective union headquarters to vote overwhelmingly in rejection of the offer of 47 hours. They were still insisting on 44 hours. The next day, at a meeting in the Assembly Hall in Belfast, the results of the ballot were read out. Employers were busy scrambling meetings of directors to try and find a resolution. The unions publicly informed them, however, that if the resolution was not a 44-hour working week, then they would cease work on Saturday the 25th of January at 12 noon. The scene was set. 
When the day arrived with no resolution in place, workers belonging to the Federation of Shipyard Workers, Engineers and Allied Trades left work under a pledge not to return except on the basis of a 44-hour week. Workers were immediately withdrawn from the city's gasworks and power station, while no trams were seen after 4pm. The gas supply was cut off the next morning, and the electricity supply was cut off on the Monday morning. Hospitals, though, were spared any power disruption. Over 40,000 people were out of work, either by choice or by compulsion, and in the space of just two days, Belfast had become an idle city in darkness. A strike committee of 126 members were in total control of the city during this period, so much so that the strike was being referred to in some quarters as a Soviet. The strike committee ran the city in conjunction with the Lord Mayor of Belfast, while the Royal Irish Constabulary appointed 300 special constables nominated by the strike committee to help maintain law and order and avoid pitched battles with the police. Yards were closed and pickets prevented anyone from going down Queen's Road without a pass from the strike committee. They even stopped company directors. Anyone who wanted a power supply had to apply to the strike committee to be reconnected. However, this didn't prevent city centre businesses, including the Belfast Telegraph offices, trying to tap into emergency power supplies intended for hospitals, resulting in them being stoned by crowds of workers until they were forced to close. Other than this incident, Violence had largely been avoided in Belfast, primarily due to the foresight of Unionist politicians, it has to be said, who saw that it would be counterproductive to involve British soldiers, hence why the strike committee were able to exude such power in the early days of the strike. It was also helped by the strike committee, who arranged regular patrols of the streets to prevent hooliganism, as they termed it. George William Hackett Payne, who was a former leading member of the Ulster Volunteer Force during the Home Rule Crisis and of the 36th Ulster Division during the First World War, was now the Chief Military Officer of British Forces in the North of Ireland. Hackett Payne insisted that troops be kept in their barracks during this period of strike in Belfast. Also, R. Dawson Bates, future Home Affairs Minister at Stormont, warned Edward Carson that, quote, once one of the workers got injured in a melee, with the troops, nothing could save Belfast from becoming a scene of disorder, the consequences of which would be far-reaching. The press suffered some short-term problems also. The Irish News was closed down until the 14th of February, the Belfast Telegraph was closed for a week, and the Belfast Newsletter missed a single issue. But the Northern Whig did somehow manage to keep going, though reduced in size and in circulation. In order to maintain the flow of news and information, the Strike Committee published their own newspaper, the Belfast Strike Bulletin, as it was called, from Artisans Hall on Garfield Street. You can see an original copy of the third issue of this bulletin at the Lennon Hall Library. Other issues were definitely produced during the strike, but I can't say for certain where exactly the other original copies might exist. There is one copy at the Public Records Office, but it happens to be the same issue as the copy at the Lennon Hall Library. On closer inspection, though, this is a curious little publication, only four pages long, but laced with fighting talk and high aspiration. To quote from it at length, Readers will observe our little paper is growing. It was a humble little sheet at first, but it always contained the real stuff. We intend to make it a much bigger thing. We are going to place it among the best periodicals published. 
we hope in time that it will take the place in the workers' hands of those rags which seize every opportunity of misrepresenting the workers, of pouring abuse upon their motives, and of hurling contempt at their efforts when an attempt is being made to lighten the intolerable burden which labour has had to support in the past. We anticipate, in the near future, being able to put into the hands of the public a much better paper than any hitherto produced in Belfast, and as a result, we shall have the only paper produced. Is it any wonder, after such hostility from the strike bulletin, that the Belfast Telegraph and Belfast Newsletter went on to be openly critical of the strike, basically labelling all those involved as Bolsheviks, anarchists and Sinn Feiners? Elsewhere in the strike bulletin, one could read an update on the outcome of any recent meetings held by the Federation of Engineering and Shipbuilding Unions, very much keeping the men informed. My personal favourite, though, is the section simply called The Bulletin. At this point, I will let The Bulletin speak for itself. Newspapers play a part in the commercial and general life of the communities that cannot be performed in any other manner. Fortunately or unfortunately, the usual news sheets of the city are just now very considerably curtailed. We are supplying this deficiency and will print personal notices, lost and founds, wanted, for sale, births, marriages, anything you like, at rates that are very reasonable. And I just love the idea of some shipyard worker from the Newton Arts Road in East Belfast posting a marriage notice in the Belfast strike bulletin. I mean, maybe it happened. I've only had eyes on this particular third issue, so if you're listening to this podcast and you have a few issues of the Belfast Strike Bulletin stashed away from 1919, do get in touch because I would be delighted to hear from you. By the second week, the strikers' resolve was beginning to waver. They hadn't counted on a long drawn out strike that would impact them financially, or that their dramatic actions of the previous week would yield no concessions. As Charles McKay, one of the Leaders of the strike put it on the 28th of January. The fight would be bitter and some of them would have to suffer. It was better to make it fast and furious, short and sharp. They had hoped to drive the key local employers, people like William James Peary of Harland and Wolfe, to the negotiating table and to win quickly. On Tuesday the 4th of February, a huge demonstration of strikers made its way from Carlisle Circus to Belfast City Hall. The meeting ended with an extraordinary scene. The funeral of George Cumming, the managing director of Harland and Wolfe, which passed the City Hall, and members of the strike committee led many of the workers in joining the cortege to pay their respects. By this stage, though, there was an attempt by William James Peary to negotiate an end to the strike, but ultimately it came to nothing. On the 12th of February, then, the Glasgow strikers surrendered, leaving Belfast isolated. By now, the authorities, the press, and the employers were becoming increasingly frustrated at the situation. The Lord Mayor issued calls for individuals to return to work and this was followed by a military operation where armed troops moved to regain control of the gasworks and power stations. The men were told to return to work and most of them did. The strike had fallen apart and attentions now switched to securing the 47-hour working week which they had previously been offered and rejected. By Tuesday the 18th of February, the trade unions were admitting defeat and the strike committee were advocating an end to the strike and a return to work on the basis of a 47-hour week. By Thursday the 20th, a vast majority of those involved were back to work with their new working hours. The strike was over. 
the strike committee argued that the failure of the Belfast workers was due to the collapse of the movement in Great Britain, which had left them isolated. In the final edition of the Belfast Strike Bulletin they printed, We feel that if the same spirit had been shown elsewhere, as was exhibited in Belfast, the end would have been immediate victory. As it is, the 44 is only delayed. Ultimately, the strike had failed to achieve its key demands. But it did prompt something of a red wave of industrial unrest across Ireland and Britain, paving the way for further reductions to the working week. In May 1919, for example, 100,000 people reportedly turned out for the Belfast May Day Rally at Ormo Park, possibly the biggest ever May Day Rally held in Ireland. The first opportunity to cash in some of this momentum was in the council elections of 1920, when the first preference vote for Labour candidates was highest in Belfast. Here, they won 13 seats on the Belfast Corporation. Was this a direct consequence of the engineering strike? Well, quite possibly it was, yes, because five of the 13 elected were leaders of the 1919 strike. Sam Kyle, for example, topped the poll on the Shankill Road, while in Sandy Row, another strike leader topped the poll, and so on. Yet within a few months, organised trade unionism in the shipyards was smashed, and many members of the strike committee were expelled during an episode of shipyard expulsions, when labour activists and Catholics were systematically punished. Among them were many Protestants, labelled rotten prods for their perceived disloyalty. From then until 1922, Belfast became engulfed in some of the worst sectarian fighting that the city has ever witnessed before or since, and with it, the hopes of a strong labour movement which might have transcended religious and cultural differences were dealt a heavy blow. Thank you for listening to episode 2 of the Historical Belfast podcast. It really is my pleasure to bring these stories to you. If you haven't already, please do give it a review on whatever platform you're listening. It really does make a difference, as does word of mouth. So if you can, tell one or two others to tune in and get involved. I'll be back next month with episode 3, titled Ghosts of the Psalm, when I will welcome my first guest to the podcast, uh, Dr. Jonathan Evershed, to talk about memory and commemoration of the Battle of the Psalm.